turn to type 2 Ezekiel 20. For the past couple weeks, we've been moving through the book of Ezekiel, which is a prophetic book in the Old Testament, and perhaps one of the most obscure books of the Bible at that. So even if you are a seasoned Christian, Bible reader, even seminary trained individual, do we have any seminary trained individual or Christian school, Christian college graduates where you had like Bible as a class? Okay, not many of you, some of you, okay. Even still, in all likelihood, you still probably don't know that much about the book of Ezekiel. You're probably not all that familiar with Ezekiel as you would be with other books of the Bible. And that's understandable because the book of Ezekiel, as you read through it, kind of flip the pages, you see a lot of strange references, interesting visions, eclectic illustrations. And there's no no real other way to put it. Just straight up downright odd analogies about sin, judgment, salvation, the Messiah. Let me just give you several just off the cuff. A guy who has to lay on his side for 390 days on his left side as a picture of something. Or, or this weird command to cook food over human dung. That's in, the, that's in the book of Ezekiel. A vision of an animal that has four heads. Okay, A chariot wheel that is full of eyeballs searching in different directions. And you're like, that sounds like something out of like a Halloween movie, right? So you read stuff like that in Ezekiel and you're like, what am I supposed to do with that? Is this like, do I sleep on my side for 390 days, like on my left side, and then switch to my right side? What if I like to sleep on my back or on my stomach? If you sleep on your stomach, you're weird anyways. But what are you supposed to do with, with all of these verses? There's certainly explanations uh, and a deeper study we can do into each of those strange symbols uh, of, of prophecy. We don't have time to do that today, of course. But all that is to say is that if you're hoping to just, I don't know, randomly open up your Bible to find those warm, cuddly, fuzzy feelings with you and Jesus time, the book of Ezekiel is probably not the pl- best place to start, okay? <laughs> if you're looking for that warm, cuddly feeling, maybe go to Psalms or Proverbs, maybe an epistle or the gospel, something like that, but, but not Ezekiel. Ezekiel is an eclectic book, but don't let the eclecticness turn you away from the book either, because it is a book that's also very realistic. It gives us a real picture about life's hardship and hope, too, and it shows us God's heart and his help through our difficult seasons of life and how we kind of navigate through them. See, the book of Ezekiel ultimately recounts a a snapshot or a, a scene in Israel's history where they just gotten taken over and sieged by the Babylonian Empire, okay? And for years before the Babylonian takeover of Jerusalem, uh, Israel had turned away from God, they had worshipped other gods, they had forsaken his statutes, forsaken his design, worshipped themselves, did what they did in their own eyes, they thought that what was right is what I want to do and not what God has called us to do, and so God is using the Babylonian Empire as an instrument of discipline to bring them back into a right relationship with himself. So little by little, as the the, the book of Ezekiel accounts, year by year, more and more Israelites, they're getting exiled from Jerusalem a thousand miles away to Babylon. More and more, like year by year, Babylon gets a little bit more and more control. Their suffering gets more and more steadily increased over and over again as Babylon continues to dominate Judah. Israel's suffering gets worse and worse. And in the meantime, as they're kind of suffering through this, uh, this, this discipline of God, this, their suffering has begun to wake them up spiritually. They're starting to ask the questions, well, well God, where are you? And, uh, where, where are we exactly? What do I actually believe? And so God uses in that time of them waking up spiritually, a man, a young man named Ezekiel, who's 30 years old, so the age of many of us uh, in this class, And he's using a man named Ezekiel to be a mouthpiece 
of his word and his will to the Israelites. See, oftentimes God allows us to go through dark valleys as well. Hardship, not because he's trying to pay us back, but because he's trying to bring us back into a right relationship with him. And oftentimes God speaks most clearly to us in those seasons through his people who are bringing his word to bear on our lives. That's why we do this in class. Bible study class in small group, because you shouldn't assume that you're going to sit in your bedroom and hear an audible word from God. You might. I'm going to say it's probably unlikely. But what you will hear and what is the the scriptural standard of how God often speaks to people is through his word, through his people, to his people. And that's what Ezekiel is in this moment to Israel. And and we know this, right? Given the book of Ezekiel, the season of suffering that they're going through, life is not all cheer and happiness. Even during the holidays, right? I mean, you know, even in the holidays, I feel like we go into Christmas time and we're like, okay, it's got to feel a certain way and I got to be super joyful and it's got to be a super happy experience and I have everything has to be right and I got to get all the right gifts and I got to receive all the right gifts. And then sometimes we get out of the Christmas season and we're almost a little bit like jaded because it didn't even measure up to what we had hoped it would be in our heads, right? So life involves disappointment. It involves displacement. It involves deep hurt and confusion. And the story of Ezekiel is that God uses all of it, all of it to accomplish his redemptive purposes for his people. Despite their sin, despite what's happened to them, despite what's happening all around them. And God uses Ezekiel in particular in and through that season to bring Israel back. So I hope that you found Ezekiel 20 in your Bibles by now. To set the context, we, uh, we're looking at uh, yeah chapter 20, and it's given us a scene, really, of the leaders of Israel approaching Ezekiel to hear a specific word from God because they're in distress, and they want to hear from God finally, okay? So we're going to dive in in verse 1. We're only going to go to verse 14, and uh, I'm reading from the ESV translation. Here's how it starts. In the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me, Ezekiel. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, thus says the Lord, is it to, is it to inquire of me that you come? As I live, declares the Lord, I will not be inquired by you. Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Let them know of their abominations of their fathers and say to them, thus says the Lord, on the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them saying, I am the Lord, your God. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of lands. Verse seven. And I said to them, cast away your detestable things, your eyes feast on every one of you and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God, but they rebelled against me. They were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Okay. Let's pause right there before we move on. What's going on. Here's essentially what's happening. The elders of Israel, the leaders of society, of religion, of politics, they realize that like life's not going well. Everything's crumbling. They're all feeling in a, like they're in a really hard spot. So they're like, we got to approach Ezekiel to get a word from God. They realize, okay, our situation's getting harder, not better. Our suffering's getting more intense, not less. And now it's beyond our control to alleviate the situation. So now we got to hear from God. So that's why they're going to Ezekiel right now, finally. It's been quite a while, but they're finally doing it. By the way, isn't this kind of typical of all of us? 
right? You know, life's going fine. Therefore, I don't really need to, to depend on God. Life's going fine. It's, it's just nice and dandy. So I don't really need to trust God for anything in my life, really. But then when life gets hard, when it gets tough, then we start knocking on heaven's door. We're like, God, I've kind of run out of my earthly options. I've kind of run out of my natural explanations for things. So now I need your help. Now I need heavenly explanations. Now I need heavenly options. I need your help, finally. And what happens next here in the text is interesting. It's not what we might expect. So what's the result? Do they get a word from God? Well, yes and no. <laughs> yes, in the sense that God does give a word to Ezekiel, to them, but also no, in the sense that God's word to them is, I'm not going to give you a word. Isn't that interesting? So why? It, why does God say, I'm not going to give you a word, which is a word, but he's not going to give them a word. Why? Why does he do that? The reason God does not give them a word is because God really knows what's going on in the hearts of these uh, Israelite leaders who have rejected God and rebelled against him. He really knows what's going on in their hearts. He really knows their motives. He really knows why that they're approaching him finally. And see, these elders of Israel are coming to God in this moment, but they're not really coming to God for God, nor are they really approaching God as God. They're going to God because they've run into the dead end of being their own gods. And now they finally need help. And they're asking for God's help to continue to be their own gods. They want to run life the way that they want to run life. And that's it. And they want God to help them do that. And so in reality, they're not really asking for God's help. They don't actually really want to hear from God. How do we know that? Because look at verse 7 in your Bibles. It says very clearly, God already gave them a clear word through his scriptures, through his prophets, to follow his law, to obey his word, to love their neighbors, to worship the Lord only. And they aren't doing any of that. And so God communicated clearly to them, and they've rejected all of what's clear. And now they're in a bind, and then they're like, God, we need your counsel, a special counsel about this special situation that we're in. And God's like, really? Like the nerve, you want, a spe- you want a special word from me? Why would I give you a special word when you've already rejected my general word, my, my clear word, my clear will for obedience and purity and generosity? Does that make sense? I think this is a good picture and reminder to us that God is a person. He's not some genie in a bottle. He's not some force or some formula that we got to figure out. He's a person. So let me give you a human relationship analogy to kind of flesh this out a little bit. Let's say uh, this is how God feels or felt in this moment. Let's say you work for somebody and you just really don't like them. This is a a boss, manager, somebody, and you're just never really following orders and you just don't respect their opinion or their goals. You violate expectations. You show up late every day. You leave early every day. No effort to improve. No desire to submit. But then like the holiday season rolls around, right? And you're like, it'd be nice to get a raise. And next year, you know what? I'd really like some more time off too. And so you approach your boss, your manager, and you're like, I would really like a 20% raise and more time off. What do you think your boss or manager would say? They'd be like, seriously? I'm not even going to listen to that request because it's absurd that you would even feel bold enough to ask given how you approach me with everything else that's clear. Right? Or, or think about this like human relationship analogy as well. Have you ever, um, we've all done this by the way, have you ever like gone to someone looking or asking for their advice, but you really didn't want their advice, you really just wanted to hear what they'd have to say, and you'd kind of take it or leave it, because you've already determined what you wanted to do anyways, 
right? You really just wanted their confirmation to do what you already wanted to do. And if they say no, then you're like, well, didn't really ask really for your advice. I just wanted to hear what your advice might be. That's essentially what the Israelites are doing with God right here. We do this with God all the time as well. See, the Israelites, they're looking for a specific type of counsel, a specific type of help, a specific type of wisdom from God for a particular area of their life that's not going well. And while at the same time, they've, they've already made it clear to God through their, 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 through their body language, through their words, through their lifestyle choices, through their habits and priorities, that God, we're not going to follow your authority. We're not going to follow your word. We're not going to follow your will, even though you've made that very abundantly clear. We're not, we don't want that in our life. So, okay, how does this kind of practically apply to us? All right, most of us see we, we often want a special word of wisdom or counsel from God in a particular area that we think is not going well. So, for example, God, I really need clarity about this dating relationship that I'm in. But, you know, yet we're still, like, engaging in all this sexual sin. We're engaging in pornography. And yet we're asking for God to give us clarity about a very area where we're not even submitted to his clear will already. God, I pray for this promotion so that I can earn more. I got to get more money to pay for all these things that I, I need to pay for. And yet, at the same time, we're not, we're not following his basic will about generosity, about sacrifice, about a tithe. Why should we expect that God would honor us in giving a promotion to earn more when we haven't even followed his clear will about money first and foremost? God, I pray for more friends and more good community. I need that. While at the same time, we're gossiping and we're assuming the worst of others and we're slandering and we're holding grudges and we're not forgiving other people. Why would God provide that if we're not even following his clear will? Right? And see, in each of these cases, God wants to give a certain special answer to our prayers, whether it's romance or money or opportunity. He, he desires to be in that area of our life, but we've already shut him out at square one because we've not been willing to obey and follow and submit. We want it on our own terms, and we also want him to help us on our own terms too. And here's why God does not answer those prayers. He does not answer those prayers. Here's why. Follow with me here. If God were to answer those prayers, God would be reinforcing idolatry. And he doesn't do that. God would be encouraging us in our own sin. God would be feeding our sinful appetites to keep doing what is harmful and destructive to us. And because he's good and loving and righteous, he won't do that. His righteousness constrains him from answering prayers like that. See, we should not expect that special word, special grace for areas where we're already not obeying God's general will and general word in our lives. We shouldn't expect that. And please hear me out. Like, I, It's not that we can never get to a point where we finally earn like God's answering of our prayers through our obedience, that, that's not it at all, because we're always going to fail and mess up. That's why we have the gospel. The difference is that, are we coming to God for God? Are we approaching him on his terms, or are we using God as a means to an end that we've already been worshiping ourselves? Are we our own end that we're making God an apprentice to accomplishing our own idolatry? God won't be involved like that. Just like any relationship, right? Because God's a person. No one likes being used as a means to an end. We shouldn't expect anything from that person. Nobody. God is withholding from the Israelites here. He's withholding an immediate grace in their situation because he wants something better for them. Namely, first and foremost, a right relationship with himself, which will only lead to flourishing. And that's the foundation truly for everything else. 
but he wants to be involved. So he's calling them to turn. He's calling them to repentance. He's calling us to do the same too. And we're going to keep moving through this passage. Look at uh, the second half of verse eight. Then I said, this is God speaking. Then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. He's upset at sin. God doesn't like sin. Verse nine, but I acted for the sake of my name. If you want to highlight that phrase, underline that phrase, but I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes. I made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. If you want to write down or underline or highlight another phrase, he shall live. Verse 12, moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel, they rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but they rejected my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live again. And my Sabbaths, they greatly profaned. Then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. He's like, I don't like sin. I hate what it does to people. I hate what it does to all of us. But verse 14, you have that phrase again. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Okay, so you have those two phrases, if you were listening closely, hopefully you underline two phrases that are going to stick out that we'll wrap up our time with. But I acted for the sake of my name, and he shall live. What does that mean, by the way? But I acted for the sake of my name. This is essentially what God is saying. He's saying, people of Israel, my people, it's not that I'm ignoring you. It's not that I'm simply saying no. It's just that I'm not answering your prayers and I'm not acting for the sake of your name. I'm, I'm answering your prayers and I'm acting for the sake of my name in your life. In other, in other words, God is saying your will is not helping you, right? Like your authority is not helping you. Your life is crumbling. Your kingdom is crumbling. You're in a mess and you keep getting worse and worse and worse when you're doing things your way. Verse 13, they did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. God knows better than we do. His authority is best for us. And when we follow his authority, his will, his word, that leads to life, to spiritual flourishing. He wants us to live, to have life abundantly. And when we live by our own self-authority, defining right and wrong by our own you know, ideas, good and bad, best and better for my situation, we just keep incurring sin and death and destruction into us, into other relationships, into our work, into money, opportunity, romance, all of it. And so God wants to get us out of that, that destructive cycle and, and usher us into something good. God is, however, because he's good, he's just. He's just to punish our sin. He's also just to not answer our prayers. If we've turned away from him and rejected him, why should we expect him to answer, to be obligated to answer our prayers? He's just to not do that. But the hope that we have is, but I acted for the sake of my name. That's God's hope. That's the key. That's the promise behind how God feels about us, behind why he answers prayer. By the way, what is God's name? Everyone know that? By, for the sake of my name. What is it like? Is God's name God? Like, what, like what's, what does he mean here? Why not just say like for my sake? Why for the sake of my name? In scripture, when it says for the sake of my name or when it says like the name of the Lord, it's not just saying like, it's not how we use it in English. It's really, 
I guess, a synonym for character, the, the glory of who he is, for the sake of the glory of who he is, my character. Scripture tells us that God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness, of mercy, of justice, who uses his power to, and wisdom to lead to our wholeness, to our flourishing. And the best thing that could ever happen to any of us, the best thing that could ever happen to any of us is for God to glorify himself in our lives. For the sake of his name, he would glorify himself in our lives. He's so committed to his own glory because it is best for us. We were made for his glory. After all, God is acting when he acts for the sake of his name. He does so ultimately so in Jesus Christ. His name, his word that became flesh, became uh, a man. And in saving us, he magnified his steadfast love. He's not just his character, his steadfast love. Now he can prove it. His steadfast love and his faithfulness to us, his justice and mercy on the cross, punishing sin, but atoning for it. So he doesn't punish us. In Jesus Christ, he does approach us for the sake of his name. But I acted for the sake of my name. That is the gospel message that during Christmas time, we celebrate the very first stages of in the, in the manifestation, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. All the beginning of the promises of God are beginning to come into fulfillment because of Jesus. Going back to Ezekiel 20, okay? We're almost done. All the Israelites deserved was to be forsaken and was to be judged. Was to be forsaken, to be ignored. That's all they deserved, but for the sake of God's name, he showed abundant mercy and grace. All we deserve from God is hell. All we deserve from God is not answers prayer, not answers to prayer is not is not to be accepted it's to be forsaken that's the justice of god but for the sake of god's name he showed us abundant grace and mercy and justice in jesus christ so that we might not be forsaken jesus was forsaken so that we might not be jesus on the cross cried god why have you forsaken me so that when we cry in our deepest moments of despair he will listen to us jesus got the turning away of god's justice so that we could have the acceptance of god's love That's how the gospel works, and that's the only thing. That grace, that mercy, that faithfulness is the only thing that will truly transform our hearts from being rebellious people who don't want God, who don't obey his authority, to finally seeing God as a good God, to seeing God as as an authority that we want to follow and we want to submit to. That kind of love transforms us. It humbles us in our prayers. It also also humbles us with our prayers, too. We, We pray and we can just give it to him because we believe that he's good and he's faithful and he's trustworthy. And sometimes even that grace and love of God is manifested to us by denying certain requests that God in his wisdom knows is better for us than other things. God knows better for us than we know for ourselves. James 4 says this, you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? In other words, God wants relationship and fellowship with us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So how do we respond in all this to Ezekiel 20, to this reality of God as a person who's glorious and holy. How do we respond? The last phrase says it all. God gives grace 
to the humble, but he opposes the proud. Humility in prayer is this. It says, God, not my will, but yours be done. God, I will first humble myself under your authority, your word, your will. And then I'll just seek, I will seek special counsel in my life from you in those particular areas. Because now I've I've submitted those particular areas to you. Do you need special guidance or direction or counsel right now in life? Like what what are you, what are each of us, going through in a particular area where you know you need a special counsel, a special word, special wisdom. I, I, I just want to recite just a couple verses, these promises of God that we have towards us. Psalm 31.3, one of my favorite verses. You are my rock and my fortress, and for your namesake, can you have that namesake again, you lead me and you guide me. In other words, when I humble myself and I make God my fortress and my rock, Now I've positioned myself where God promises to lead me and guide me. Now I am leadable and guidable because I've submitted myself to him. First, uh, Psalm 37, five, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. My job is to humble myself, commit myself before the Lord, not myself. I'm committing myself to him and his authority, not my own authority. And then I have the promise that he will act on my behalf. That's for all of us. Proverbs 3, 5, one of you know, believers' favorite verses about the clarity of God's uh, heart towards us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Our job, our responsibility is to humble ourselves, to deny ourself authority, to deny ourselves, to take up our own cross, to trust and acknowledge the Lord in all we do. And then his job is to make our path straight. Our problem is that we, when we try to do his job, and not do our job. And he can't do his job truly if we're not letting him because we're following our own authority instead. His name's sake, his steadfast love, his mercy, his grace, his justice demonstrated to us in the gospel is what humbles us and empowers us to finally obey. And our humility and our obedience by faith is the starting point by which God we're being surrendered to him by which God will move and act and provide and promise in our life. That's the starting point. And, and just because it's not immediate for God to answer your prayers, that doesn't mean that he's not intimately involved, right? If anything, the Christmas story ought to be proof. For 400 years, God was silent until he sent a baby. And when he answered prayer, that prayer of the Messiah, like he does with all of our, pray, all of our prayers, it might not come in the same way that we think. God came again as a baby. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for the time that we have to dive into the Christmas season of Advent to know of your love that came down for us, that you're a personal God who cares about life here, all of us. And you came and you were born and you came to die for us so that we might have life in your name. I pray that we would have a deeper and richer experience of that this Christmas season. I pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.